This is a Momentum Media production. Nerd alert! Property Nerds, <laughs> the home for data-driven property investors, where we uncover Australia's hot and cold markets, latest headlines and trends. Hello, hello. This is uh, Arjun here, your host of the Property Nerds podcast. And uh, today we've got a bit of a different flavor here on our episodes. And firstly, you'll probably notice that uh, I haven't had the the second hello in this mix, which is usually my lovely wife and the director of Hills Finance, Lee Polywell. So give you some context on that. Lee and I are both actually in Singapore as we're recording this. And we're very, very grateful and lucky to be traveling here for work, catch up with many of our expat clients and uh, business relationships. And as a result, Lee Lee, is, um, you know, Lee and I have gone down the divide and conquer route. And you know, she's got a few key catch-ups to make use of our you know limited time here in Singapore. And I thought we'd still carry on the spirit of the property nodes, especially with some uh, new content that we've got today with a, a special guest on. So if you uh, haven't tuned in also to our most recent episode, which is on the housing fundamentals white paper, that was uh, something that I personally went through with Lee in a previous discussion around what's happening in Australia. And we're going to revisit some of those points today just to go deeper, but also give you a different spin on them. Thanks to our guest here uh, for today's episode. Now, uh, before we dig into an introduction of who I've got on with me today, I also wanted to let everyone know some exciting news. We've recently launched our most up-to-date white paper, and this is actually on an interesting topic. It's called Australia's Renewable Energy Boom, and we're talking about a few markets that Lee and I, the rest of the Investigate team, have talked about that we feel are going to benefit greatly from some of the vast amounts of renewable energy spending that's occurring across Australia. Now, before you dig deep into that white paper, it's really important to know that you know these cities are seeing this job increase, job advertisements, dollar spending advertisements. But whilst renewable energy is a very, very new you know, world to many of us in many cities, it's not quite something that we can say just yet is 100% proven as replacing many things or 100% the way to go. And that's not a debate we're doing on that white paper because many people are on the for or against, and that's not what we're here for. We're here on that white paper to just simply say that what renewable energy does and the investment does is it creates opportunity, jobs, improvements in the environment and other things. And so all the other stuff, leave that at the doorstep when you're catching up and checking through this white paper. This white paper is to tell you about all the economic benefits that can come from it and from this new spending on a few cities that are of interest. So if you want to get to know more about those cities, just jump on investikit.com.au. It's totally free. It's a free white paper that we release as part of our monthly releases of information that you can jump on prepared by the Investigate Research and Data Science team. And uh, that's on investigate.com.au and the white paper section. So that's enough about the most recent white paper coming out, today's episode. So today's episode, I've got with me John from Domain and and not just uh, anyone from Domain, we've got the Chief Revenue Officer of Domain in the <laughs> house. So John, how's that for a title? How are you feeling about that introduction, huh? <sighs> I'm very flattered, Arjun. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here with you. No, very, very good to have you on, my friend. Um, I know we've been excited to, you know, connect and work closely. We actually do work closely with Domain and APM on the back end in terms of our business here at Investigate. So we work closely there. But I wanted to also actually have that discussion with you in terms of, 
you know, what's happening more in the market and get someone else's opinion. I think everyone's probably sick of hearing my voice all the time <laughs> talking about research, data, nerding out. But I guess it would be good to speak to you today and firstly, know more about your, your journey and how life first started before getting into Domain and what you're doing at Domain at the moment. Great. Thanks, Arjun. Well, it's a pleasure to be uh, on this podcast and uh, it's great to great to, to meet you, Arjun, and be excited. I, I got a chance to look at some of the research you've done. I think we're very like-minded in terms of the, you know, how we think at the market, how we think at the long term, and really excited for what you and your listeners are doing for the industry as a whole, which is so important, not just for you know professionals in the real estate industry, but you know, mums and dads, investors all across this country. Uh, it's a it's a really important work. So for me, I I, I grew up in Sydney. I'm a Sydney sider, and I'm a bit of a nerd in my background. I got my first computer when I was four, which is back in the 80s. It was not very common, and uh, and loved technology, loved geeking out on things, loved numbers. Uh, and the, the the degree that I pursued was one in leadership and technology. Uh, that was my my undergrad. And as I was growing up, two things were happening. I actually started my world of property investing, which I'll, I'll come to. But I've kind of been in pretty geeky roles. I started off as a management consultant. I did my MBA. I got to travel all around the world, I guess, understanding businesses. So my favorite one being I was helping chicken farmers in Mozambique understand their cost structure. Uh, and that was part How of cool the that? Yeah, it was nice. It was very yeah. nice. Uh, so, and after I did my MBA, I uh, happened to to join a, a real cool, geeky, nerdy company, uh, a small company called Google at the time. In, uh, in very small company indeed, mate. Very, very small company. company. Yeah, it was uh, it was only a few thousand people back then, uh, and I and I was one of the, the first hundred employees, a few hundred employees in their London office uh, back in two thousand six. Started off in marketing, went to technical operations, and then up in sales. So, ended up staying at Google for thirteen years uh, in Europe and in America, and then stayed in another Silicon Valley company, uh, Uber. Uh, so I was there for a few years, similar kind of stuff, running customer engineering and running agency sales, which went about a year ago when me and my family were trying to come back to Australia, proved very, very important because Domain is a company that, you know, is trying to help mums and dads, sellers and buyers all across Australia. But primarily, we go to market through real estate agents. They're the ones who recommend our services. Uh, and so my experience at Google and Uber really set me up for uh, really learning how to be, uh, help Domain be more successful in creating that ecosystem. And that's a very exciting journey, and it's taking you what across the world to some of the the startup names, to some of the largest names, and and while well, Uber startup back then, not so much of a startup now, is it? Uh, it's a, it's they're both big 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 behemoths now. So uh, no, it was, it was wonderful to learn from them how they think about technology. But uh, the other thing I did want to say is, uh, you know, so I have more of a tech background. I'm not necessarily a property or real estate professional. Though my dad was uh, was a real estate agent. Growing up, property was our family business. I still remember when I was 18, I started off at uni. Uh, first thing I did when I got my first uh, paycheck on a scholarship was put a down payment on a, on a house. Well, actually, it was an apartment. It was a small apartment, a university apartment in Sydney. And that was uh, at the behest of my dad and my granny, who insisted, as soon as I have an income, we invest in property. Uh, and the wonderful thing about that was, you know, when I was you know, 18, starting off on that journey, just spending $60,000 on apartment, putting my life savings at the time into a deposit uh, was super cool. Uh, and then that's just happened to grow, you know. So over the next 10, 15 years, I end up investing in almost state, every state and territory in Australia, going from apartments to houses. I had a bunch of houses in Cairns, uh, which happened to pay for my, my graduate degrees overseas, uh, you know, started, you know, buying in Darwin and Adelaide and Perth in all these other parts, in parts of rural Queensland. So just a really, really exciting journey of just trying out things and being in the market a long time. I was also very lucky. Uh, this was a time of, of great property growth, you know, for kind of from the, the late 90s all the way to the, the 2010s, all the way to, to that recession. And, you know, I was very lucky to kind of uh, to hold on to those properties and, and see them grow. 
Uh, and then in the last 10 years while I've been away from Australia, shift a lot of those assets into America. So most of my investments now are in America, particularly in Silicon Valley, where really got into both residential property and commercial property there. We had a, full, a small uh, fast food restaurant uh, outfitting out there. So really exposure to different kinds of property uh, with the same kind of core belief. It's it's the time in the market that counts, using your income to leverage uh, some of the concepts that I know you've spoken about, and then really just buying premium assets and, and trying to hold on to them as long as possible, you know, riding out the waves. So I've been very, very lucky to enjoy that. And really a lot of my desire to join domain is to give people a chance to do that, either as you know, uh, owner-occupiers or investors. Well, I think, do you feel like with the journey that you've been on, and that's been so exciting to hear more about your property investing and how long ago this all started and where you've even taken it across countries, which would be an adventure on its own, but uh-huh. do you feel like that's been a big part of connecting you closer to what you do today for work and probably drove the career towards where domain has come up or or did property just fall on your laps with domain and it wasn't as intentional? Yeah, you know, I'd like to say it was all part of great planning, but it's kind of lucky, honestly. You know, when we were looking to come back to Australia, but both my, we have two young girls, they were both born overseas. Uh, we were looking to come back to Australia. I was looking for a technology company that wasn't quite at the startup stage, had some stability, was a brand name, but was kind of small enough that I could experience being at the at the senior level. Because before I'd been in, in middle management at Uber and Google and, and really enjoyed that and led very large teams, but these are companies of tens and hundreds of thousands of people. And, you know, it was so happened that Domain at the time was looking for a chief revenue officer. And it was a real perfect fit because the size of where that company is at, it's a thousand people, the size of revenue, uh, the size of the commercial team were things that were comfortable to me. Even the way of selling primarily through agents was something very comfortable to me. Uh, the fact that it happened to be in a subject matter ex- expertise that I was really passionate about was more coincidence than anything else. Uh, so I'm very, very grateful how it, how it all worked out. And now that I'm here, it's hard to imagine working anywhere else. Yeah, look, um, I think that's the beauty of, of you know, your openness of your journey, right? It's taking you cross countries, cross companies, and and as you remain as open as possible, some of these doors start to open up, fall on the laps, and here you are today. So, mate, look, that's really exciting uh, in Thanks. terms of all the journey that you've been on. And I guess it leads to a very relevant tip that's very much today in today's market. Today's market has obviously driven many questions on many people's minds around, is it the right time or not? But I picked up something very interesting, just understanding more about your Australian venture. Your Australian venture was across many cities, many states, and considered long-term. Because, you know, when you talk going back to 90s and then today, I guess how important does reflecting on your own journey, applying it to today's market apply when it comes to a property investor who might be thinking of investing today? Yeah, yeah, and, and Arjun, those those of you who are, I know your audience that have been with you in, in your journey and the journey of this podcast. What I'm saying is, is nothing particularly new. So I don't take credit for these ideas. I I take credit. I, I'm grateful to have parents and an upbringing that kind of helped forge those ideas. But pretty much, it's the following. It's a few simple principles. Number one, it's time in the market, not timing the market. It all comes down to how long you spend in any premium country. You know where there's a relative stability like Australia. If you buy, even if you bought at the very, very top of the market and it goes down, it's very unlikely after 10 years that you'll be behind. And it's actually much more likely you'll be well above. So that's one principle. You know, if you can buy something good, you can hold on to it. That's kind of one principle. Second thing, try and buy things which are scarce. I start off with apartments. I tend to move more to houses, uh, partly because in good places like Sydney, like Melbourne, like a lot of Australian, not even capitals, but regional capitals, these are places where people want to be. 
These are places where the great schools are, where, where, where hubs, where, where people build their families and their lives. There is never enough land in these places uh, if you give it enough time. So if you can get into those places, it always seems expensive. But if you can get and buy premium, if you buy a bit lower in the food chain, it's more risky. There's more upside, but there is potential downside. And I discovered that through a few errant investments early on. But you know, anything I bought in premium markets and I've held for more than five years has never gone wrong. And then lastly, I'd say leverage, right? The great thing about being a passive income investor is that you can use your, your salary. And that means that you know, you're putting 20, 25% down, that's effectively creating four or five times leverage you know, on your cost of capital. And that's a huge thing to do. And over many years, you end up making 20, 25% compounded returns. Whereas in a bank, you might have two or 3%. And even the stock market, you might have six or 7% because you weren't leveraged there. It's basically those principles that I've had the chance to explore the last 25 years and, and put into practice. Yeah, this, uh, it really speaks home to also the core component we talk about around, you know, buying windows and then optimizing and holding phases. And that's right. Buying, buying windows really relate to me mentally about, look, if this going on in the world or that going on in the world, at the end of the day, time's not stopping for you, John. It's not stopping yep. for me, right? Great. And we may have goals in our life to, you know, improve the well-being of ourselves, our family, those close to us, right. and ensure that in our older years we can live the best possible life, especially with all the, the time working, the taxes and everything that else goes uh-huh. into system. It's about making sure you look after yourself. And I often find that that perfect time versus you know putting those assets as condensed as possible in your buying journey and then being able to hold it for longer that's where even five-year or 10-year mistakes end up fixing themselves in 12 or 15 or 16 years. So this is a very important concept, and I'm glad that you shared this because it's so relevant to today, John. Thank you. Yeah, I think the key concept is to move away from timing the market. I accept that I cannot know. I have no idea whether this is the top market or this is actually just the start of another 10 years of growth, and this will look like the bottom. I don't know if this is the very bottom or it will get even worse. So all I know is if I hold for long enough, it will come good, right? That's that's what I do know. So I've moved away from that concept and just trying to like, great, where can I be in a position to hold? Or as Warren Buffett says, you know, when people are greedy, get fearful. And when people are fearful, get greedy, uh, you know, even a down market, it's a good time, but even up market, it'll be a good time too. Yeah, look, um, very, very wise words, my friend. And we, we've been talking about fundamentals and housing fundamentals early on in, in this uh, episode. It was something we covered off in our last last episode as well around just some of the the viewpoints of what we have in Australia. I'm very fortunate, obviously, to have you on personally, but also with regards to, you know, representing Domain. Yeah. Um, the beauty of the data that Domain has just really puts you at the forefront, doesn't it? Because I think of property and I think of, yes, the transaction, the sale and all those fancy metrics. But interestingly enough, even before the actual dealings of the property, doesn't it start with intent where people are online thinking about searching, thinking about looking around. In terms of starting at that top level, what are some of the things that you're seeing across the country on a national level from you know, things like search data or buyer intent or buyer activity when you start very macro considering the availability you have of data in domain? And as you're talking about what we're seeing right now? Yeah. Yeah. So one thing to understand about how Australians you know, look at property is this. You know, for example, with Domain, we have almost 9 million unique monthly visitors. It's a, it's a very large proportion of the adult online population. Now, we know at any one time, there's only about 400,000 of them who are actually looking for a house at that time, which means that something like 95% of people 
right, who are online, who are looking at our articles, using our apps, things like that, are not actually in the market right now per se. And so one thing I would say about the data is we have seen a continued interest, you know, in people to understand more about property, whether it's through searching, viewing listings, reading articles, you know, on the Sydney Morning Herald, and The Age, the Australian Financial Review. These things continue to be strong. If anything, people, and, and some of it is just, you know, there is fear, you know, in the market, which ends up, you know, driving, you know, more eyeballs and things like that. People are interested. They're checking. They want to know what's going on. They are afraid or they might be looking for opportunities. Certainly over time, as interest rates have gone up, house prices have flattened or gone down. And you have a combination of both sellers who are potentially holding off selling because they're not sure and buyers who are holding off buying because they're not sure if things will go down. We have seen the amount of activity in the market, you know, materially decrease, you know, over the past few quarters, particularly since, you know, since this year. So that's something which, you know, is there. It's happening. It's something where, you know, it is what it is. Now, again, 90, 95% of transactions is still happening. Uh, it's births, deaths, marriages, divorces, empty nesters. These are the things that drive most activity. Most people choosing to list something online. Uh, but we are seeing because of that 5 or 10% optional, people who don't have to move right now, don't have to sell right now, there's some deferral. And similarly with buying, those people don't have to buy right now, they're deferring. So you are seeing a, a suppression of that kind of bottom of the funnel activity. How good does that make us feel as, you know, sitting in this country in Australia where we have these costs and different things change, yet, like you pointed out, a very important point was if you don't have to. And that's the thing that many people, interestingly, you know, fall and make a mistake on in their analysis. They assume that, okay, interest rate changes, interest rate increases. Wow, I'm going to get myself a deal here because everyone has to sell. And that's quite an interesting point, right? Because what you've raised there is something that's very, very, very important for listeners, which is there is a big group of people who didn't have to sell and big group of people who don't have to buy. And this is what's causing that, I guess, offset or misalignment and buyer versus supply data. And this is causing the shifting winds because of people's behaviors changing. But it's not the thing that people are thinking would happen, which is interest rates go up, delinquency rates sky up. And everyone has to in this carnage everywhere, right? The pitch is very different from what people assumed would happen and what maybe is happening from what you're seeing, right? Yeah, it's a different this is I don't want to I don't want to say this is a recession because I don't think this is a recession yet. It's a different kind of effect that you would see in a recession where people are, you know, having their homes foreclosed upon, you know, some people are defaulting, et cetera, et cetera. That is a different situation. And yes, in that situation, you know, there's a lot of price drops, there's a lot of distressed sales. Those do present particular kind of investment opportunities. Again, that can be positive or that can be negative in the short term, but will play it well in the long term. This particular kind of effect is very much the following. You're seeing interest rates go up, but you're seeing given most people, particularly anyone who's purchased the last few years, has number one, purchased at a lower price point. Number two, has generally locked in their rates for two or three years, that people aren't quite feeling the pinch. Some people are. Some people are, but it's on the margins. It's very different to a recession where you know you have a, a majority of people who are under some kind of distress. You're not really seeing that distress. And so you are seeing a reduction activity in both buying and selling, but that's more out of caution more than you know a compulsion of I have to sell. My my my, my house has been foreclosed or we have to buy right now. Yeah. And uh, you know, I think this is a perfect opportunity for us to, you know, dispel the myth of how much distress can happen in this place because there's a cap to it. And this is where we were running through some data on our side. And if you really break down the housing market, firstly, I thought to myself, okay, well, let's talk about dwellings. 
there's just over 10 million dwellings in Australia. So yeah. with that 10 million dwellings, let's talk about the two years that we've gone through of historic low. And I know historic low is probably the most overused uh, term <laughs> over the last few years because it just kept declining. But there was about five to 600,000 transactions per annum that occurred over this last year. Yeah. And then a little bit less in the year prior, considering we had COVID lockdowns and, and all that sort of stuff. But let's round it up. Let's call it a million dollar, a million transactions over those two years yeah. between 2020 and 2022. That represents about 10% of dwellings that That's could right. have been transacted on in a very, very low interest rate environment. That's right. So what people need to understand when they think of these interest rates, and I'm glad that you bring up that point of, yes, you know, there are some people who are not feeling the pinch because these low rates and others who aren't. But the main thing here is that the cap at which people can feel it is very limited because of the people that were on rates that were much higher pre-2019 anyway, That's right. versus the people who are on these 1 million of 10 million plus dwellings. So there's actually, right. in fact, only 10% of market that actually transacted in this extremely low rate environment. Isn't that interesting? It is interesting, right? And you add two other factors that, that you know, a meaningful percentage of that 10%, you know, have fixed interest rates, so they're not feeling the pinch yet. That's one. And secondly, even for people who purchased during that time, most of their equity has gone up 15 to 20. Home price has gone up 15 to 20%. Their equity has doubled. So even if things are going down, they're not going to find themselves underwater. So that's why, you know, there isn't as much distress as you might see in a classic, you know, recession environment. Yeah, it's a it's a very, very good point to mention. And when we look across the country, what we're noticing is a bit of a divergence between cities. Yeah. Uh, Cities like Sydney and Melbourne are kind of forming one bucket of movement based on what they're seeing. And then we're seeing other cities, you know, different rates of slowdown or right. some regional centers even picking up. Yeah. So I guess on, on your side, as you consider what's happening around the country, how difficult has it become to now comment on Australia uh, as a whole, right? With now the divergence, because the last two years we've seen everything pretty much rise up now to a divergence emerging. And what are some of the team noticing on your side from this divergence and which cities sort of stand out in, in the analysis? You know, I think that any credible real estate professional understands that real estate is a local market. So we will talk about, you know, macro trends. We will talk about Australia as a whole, but we have always moved, you know, in different cycles at different times. And if I speak of more broadly, you know, Auckland has actually kind of led the way. And they kind of are about four to six months ahead of Sydney, Melbourne, who are in turn about four to six months ahead of, you know, the Brisbane's of the world, who are a few months ahead of, you know, some of the regional cities, uh, regional centres that we see. So I think there's two trends which I would point out. Most cities we are seeing and most states are following the same cycles just at different times. Right. So, for example, Sydney, Melbourne started to peak about six months ago. Brisbane, probably about three months ago. Other smaller regional centers, you know, are peaking now. Right. So that's why we are seeing that. So I don't think they're necessarily different or divergent so much as different timings. Now, the, the thing that argues against that is there are some macro trends where fundamentally there is a sea change. You know, there is a permanent shift from Sydney and Melbourne up to Brisbane. There has been some permanent tree change from the cities into the regions. And that will mean that those cycles do not follow exactly because it's not just different timings, but actually a redistribution. The tricky thing is we don't really know how that's going to play out yet. We don't really know. 
there is some evidence, for example, that some of the, 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 the tree change from the cities into the regions may actually be somewhat reversing, where there's some people who move, move back saying, well, look, everyone's in the office, I need to be too, or wow, you know, this region's great, but we, we, don't, we don't want this lifestyle at this stage of our lives. You know, it was a nice experiment, but we're moving back, right? So the, the reality is we won't know. We won't know for another 18, 24 months what exactly was permanent and what was temporary. And I'll give you another analogy, which is from a different industry, but somewhat analogous. Many of your listeners will know a company called Shopify. And Shopify is kind of Amazon for e-commerce for everyone except Amazon, you know, particularly in the US, but it's it's global. A lot of a lot of vendors in Australia would use it. What they found in the, I'll just quote US numbers, that's what I was living at the time. E-commerce was about 15% of all transactions going up bit by bit, a lot of that on Amazon, a lot of that through smaller shops powered by Shopify that helped you do that. And what we found in COVID is that accelerated. It went from like 15 to 20%, 25%, like overnight. And so what happened is the, the, the assumption was, oh, this is a, a permanent change, right? Actually, we were going to get from 15 to 30%. It was going to take 10 years, but now it's actually going to take only five years, right? There was a permanent shift. But it turns out actually as COVID as a threat has passed or has normalized, the, the threat is still there, that what Shopify has found is actually reversal that it's reverted back to not where it was, but to the trend line which, which it was on. So almost in a sense that COVID didn't happen. It was a temporary aberration. And now it's gone back to kind of being you know, the trend line that was set you know, back in 2018, 2019. And so that's an example analogy I use for the whole tree change, the whole movement you know, across the eastern seaboard. Is this something short-term that was because of COVID and because of some short-term factors? Or is it actually something long-term? We won't know for a few years. All we know is that it happened, the cycles are different timing, and it may be exacerbating the cycle or it may just be something temporary. That's always the difficulty, right, with like the uh, the just all this time and data put in this one peak area like of change. Like when something as large as the change occurred and hit our shores of COVID and all the things that happened and had to react off the back of that, it's such a good point that you raise that the trends that we usually analyze previous or or, or tomorrow, or future forecasting, the amount of change that occurs from just a hard shift in direction off the back of that one one shift that occurred in COVID, it's so hard to know whether that's a is this a norm? Is this a you know actual new trend that's emerging? It stays at these levels, or does it fade off? I think our, our personal opinion was that there's an element to it where a door has been opened and structural shift occurs that you know, employers are allowing for certain change to occur. I mean, JLL's survey was an interesting one. They yeah. they had the future of work survey recently in 2022, and it showed that pre-COVID, 45% of employers were not offering any form of hybrid working. Huh. That number has now dropped to 9%. So I think the employers have kind of understood that, hey, we're open to it now because we don't want to be seen as the, the we don't do this. But you're right. It's the people that end up deciding at the end whether they want to or not. And will that trend go harder? Will it stay put? Will it not? That's pretty unknown at this stage. But what we can say is the structural shift of allowing employees to uh, have that relationship where they can choose, that's definitely improved on a on an interesting point. So, look, it's really great to see, I guess, also, you know, the mention of New Zealand and what's happening there. And I think on the mind of many Interest rates has been the most recent topic, but this changing cycle when it comes to peaks and maybe the years ahead, 
what I'm wanting to know or just get your insights on, my friend, is that do we ever go through based on, I wouldn't say do we ever, but I'd say with the data that we're seeing today, mm. how much do you think of it's uh, buyers and sellers taking a breather to figure out what's really going on versus, uh, hey, um, there's definitely substantial change here and we just can't operate at upwards trending levels for some time? Because I find that to be interesting, right? Because we've got clear sentiment changes, we've got clear borrowing capacity changes, and the cost of money changes. So how I feel about something, how much something costs, and how much am I available to get of that something being credit. Hmm. And so our theory here is that we believe that buyers and sellers are unsure, and that is driving most of the change alongside some borrowing capacity shift versus this is the end of strong housing fundamentals in Australia, and we need to just really see a whole cycle shift before we might see future growth ahead. How does Domain sit on this opinion of kind of understanding whether this is a short-term behavior change that people are unsure of or whether this is an actual hey, end of some good times? That's a great question, Arjun. So let me start with the principles with which we'd respond to that question. I'll get some of the details. There's probably two principles at play. One is that we believe in the long-term housing will be a solid investment returning 5 to 7% compounded gains annually over the course of any given decade. And I think any recession does not change how we feel about that. And that's going back, you know, over 100 years of data. You take any 10-year period, it's going up. You take any 20-year period, you're going to make 5 to 7% on average, you know, in terms of the increase of that. That's one belief. The second belief is that we do not know or attempt to know how long a downturn is, but we do know in markets where you're going over the time, like housing, downward cycles are generally much shorter than the upward cycles. Right. So to quote you more data that you know from domain research in this case, we looked at all the downturns over the past few decades, and we found the following: generally, a certain downturn, you know, goes from three quarters, nine months from peak to trough, right? And in general, an upswing goes for three years or two and three quarter years, you know, to be exact, right? So again, that does not mean that this downturn will be three quarters. It could be three months. It could be three years. Nor does it mean the net's upswing will be bigger than the downswing. But if you look at, we looked at historically the last, basically the last 10 downturns that happened, the upswing was always equal to or longer than the downswing. And it was an average of three years versus a downswing of three quarters. And so to relate that back to your question here, we not only are not sure, we know that we cannot be sure how long the downturn is. There are so many factors that go into it. What is the geopolitical impacts of Ukraine? How deep is the inflation rate effect? You know, is it actually transitory or is it something that's fundamentally changed about inflationary expectations? Therefore, how long will interest rates keep going up? Therefore, how much longer will we have volatility where sellers and buyers who can wait it out can wait it out? And therefore, how long do things keep declining? Right? We don't know. It could already be over for all we know. It might have already peaked and the good times are back and the downswing was a few months. Or this could be the start of something very serious where we give up all the gains that we've given up over the last few years. We don't know. All we do know is that eventually we'll return to 5 to 7% get yearly gains if you take kind of like if you take this bad stretch along. And uh, I think, you know, John, there's some very, very important points you mentioned on 
and a particular piece to do with the declines. The decline's not lasting that long, and the, the uprise is lasting longer in history. That's right. What it shows is this other period which we haven't talked about is that there are many periods of property either growing just above the average or just under. So what that means is it just showcases the patience people need in that in middle point as well, because there can be moments of your big upswings of two to three years. There can be moments of that, you know, short performance. How many that short downturn performance? How many examples would you have heard on the barbecues of people selling too <laughs> early or or seeing um, the hot, you know, I've held it for a long time and it hasn't done as much? That's the truth, right? I mean, there are many periods of flat, I'm not doing much, I'm doing a bit of something, or I'm doing a bit of nothing. That just shows to me the importance of really taking this long term, but also that one should buy when one can buy instead of, hey, this decline, will it last X period or Y period? Because we do both agree on the fundamental 5 to 7% long-term annualized averages. Yeah. you know, I'll speak to that, Arjun, and I'll give you a piece of data that challenges a little. If it was one piece of counsel I'd have about investing in property for success, it would be set it and forget it. In some ways, train yourself to not look at the short-term fluctuations because you might be scared to act. Uh, to use another Warren Buffett phrase, he says, we you know, in his company are very, very lazy. We don't like too many transactions. And it speaks to how little they try and do. They try to be very passive investors. To look at some of the data, generally, you're actually going through one of two stages. If you look at the last 25 years, you're going through a slight decline. Again, the decline is the minority of years, maybe like a quarter, a third of the years, but it's going down and that hurts. That's painful. It's not a lot, but going down or flat feels bad, particularly when you're leveraged. Most of the time it's going up. And it's actually generally not going up 5 or 6%. If you look at the averages of the peaks, the yearly gains at that time are like 10 to 15% per year. So you tend to have this kind of feast or famine, which is very scary. It's very emotional. It generates a lot of fear. So my counsel is, as you were saying to your listeners, try not to time the market too much. Try and find a good place, get it, and try and aim to hold for as long as possible, ideally a lifetime. And during the time, there's a lot of periods where we'd be holding on to the railings and go, oh my goodness, it's going down. I should get out of here. And there'll be other times going up where it's going, oh, it's gone up 10, 15% last year. It's going up again. I should get out of here. And in both things, the best thing you can do if you can help it is don't sell. And the illiquidity of property, right? It just adds to that too. It's it's not easy or immediate to sell. It takes time. There's a process. So we need to respect that process as well and, and let it really only be used when you find the moment is to consolidate a portfolio, clear some debt, all those life stages you mentioned at the start in terms of, hey, there's no choice. These are just the life stages, births, deaths, divorces, things like that. So made some sage advice there, my friend, with regards <laughs> to Thanks, um, I know that the markets that we've seen over the last year, one thing that's been very interesting has been the rise of the smaller capitals. Yeah. Your recent domain house price quarterly review in the report, uh, June ending, there was the clear strength of you know Adelaide emerging as a huge, huge win for in terms of capital city house price growth. It actually was the fastest growing capital city, if I'm not mistaken, for the year prior. Yeah. And also uh, from a quarter perspective, it ended that quarter with a rate of growth of 3.6% amongst houses. So this is just phenomenal. I mean, when you look at the divergence of the growth trends or the different trends in, in your Sydney and your Melbourne and Adelaide, what has the team noticed in terms of these smaller capitals that has been an absolute standout for why they've really started to pick up like Adelaide or if not pick up, outperform during the last 12 months like the markets of Adelaide? 
You know, Adelaide's an interesting example. It's one of the places I had the privilege of investing a lot uh, over the years. I made a big bet there, actually, on a certain General Motors Holden factory, which didn't quite play out, uh, which is good learning uh, for me over the time. But it's a wonderful city, a beautiful city, a place that attracts a lot of people because of its, its temperate climate. It's got some great educational institutions. It's just a lovely place to live. I don't think that Adelaide is particularly special, though, relative to other couple of cities. I think a lot of what you're talking about with regards to why has Adelaide gone up and others have gone down is more explained by the difference in the timing of the cycles than it is by any particular attributes of Adelaide itself. You know, as we talked about before, Auckland first, Sydney, Melbourne next, some of the bigger capitals and then some of the smaller capitals. And that's how I place Adelaide in there. Or put differently, I expect Adelaide to kind of follow the cycles that others have, have followed just at a more laggard pace. Now, again, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. There might be something structurally about Adelaide which have made it particularly resilient at this time. You know, I think we've seen both for migrants, you know, and for some people not in the cities, people love capital cities. They love the airport infrastructure. They love the ed- educational institutions. If you want good value and if you want a place that's, you know, uh, got a place that's that's comfortable, that's great to have kids, and you want to be in a capital city and you want to be affordable, there aren't that many places left. And Adelaide is certainly one of them. But I dare say that Adelaide will be like the others, just a bit more delayed. Yeah, it's a good point to raise in terms of following some patterns you've seen. But I think um, upon analysis, what we kind of noticed, just to throw some extra points out there, was that we noticed a shift in some supply trends. And um, this was our, our review of places like Sydney, Melbourne, and then Adelaide in contrast. And perhaps this is to do maybe with some of the later periods of the cycle that we might see these markets come in. But what we noticed was Adelaide had you know anywhere between sort of 35 to 43%, depending on which government areas that we looked at, lower supply than pre-COVID and substantially below their five-year averages. And hmm. then we, we saw Sydney and Melbourne sit very much in line with their five-year averages. And maybe this could be also a partial reason of why Sydney and Melbourne started on the earlier trajectory first, because they reached an equilibrium of housing supply and demand really pulled away as interest rates increased and you know inflation and all these other global impacts started to play into it. Whereas Adelaide just kind of snuck in there going, hey, we've still got <laughs> you know, a third less property for sale and a hell of a lot less properties for rent. And so as part of that, it's these perhaps trends in supply that are maybe just creating some change across results, which is what has put Adelaide in that upper place. But John, it's always good to reflect on um, data like this with yourself um, and and just get to understand what's happening in domain. In that front of domain itself, what is sort of some of the new and exciting things in work for uh, property data lovers like myself, or even just some of the the, the sales agents and consumers themselves who are scrolling around in and around in domain and trying to see what's coming up. Can you give us a bit of a sneak peek? Uh, can we get some intel here on the property nodes? <laughs> I'll give you some intel, uh, nothing too crazy. I think in general, we're, we're, we're data nodes here. We appreciate that we've got a very privileged position that we are in a purview to see what people are searching for, what they're looking for. We, you know, so many of Australia's property transactions go through us, you know, and that we have information through our, our app price finder, you know, which is information on, you know, the, the vast majority of Australian properties. We can look at all that together and form some really interesting impacts. And so what we've been doing actually through Dr. Nicola Powell and our economics team, we've been expanding that team and trying to really increase how much data we're sharing with customers, with seekers, with moms and dads all over Australia, so they can really understand uh, you know, what is going on and help, help them make informed decisions, plus kind of lend some wisdom about some of the topics that we're talking about before. 
a lot of what you alluded to actually is how difficult it is to get property sold, you know, in Australia. Uh, you know, it, it's a very, very stressful process for folks. There's a lot of documentation. There's a lot of things to sign. There's a lot of requirements. And part of this, like these are meaningful transactions, which might be the millions of dollars. You might only do four or five of these in your lifetime. So that's part of it. It's not just buying a car or buying a flight, uh, in the, even though those are meaningful transactions too. So a lot of our work is actually to make real estate agents' life easier. We have a whole field called Agent Solutions. We're trying to digitize the workflow, make things easier, outsource things so people can spend time what they're doing most. Really think about is now the right time to buy and sell and go out the business rather than taking six months to build up towards a transaction and all that kind of stuff. We're also really helping real estate agents serve their customers better. So we're trying to give them a lot of data that we have so they can make recommendations and help calibrate people. Oh, you're thinking of selling. Well, here's what's happening in the market. Here's what the host prices. Here's what people in your area are searching for. And a lot of my job has been to open up some of that interesting data that we can see to help real estate agents serve, real estate agents serve their customers better. So I don't want to be specific about those exact products that we bring to market, but those are the things where we want to be a real estate agent's best friend uh, so they can really help uh, both buyers and sellers alike. Well, you know, I'm excited for some of the, the data and things you're bringing out there and just making the process easier. I think one thing that you know, I've got to give my hats off to Domain on is really about how you continue to improve on just making sure from a data perspective that our consumers, the end person buying, selling property is getting smarter and smarter with time going on. And you know what? Some professionals are scared of that, but some professionals should really be excited about what that brings because it means that we work with more educated clients who are you know, trying to just better the result for themselves and need professional support, whether that be from sales agents or buyers agents. And having a more educated client just means that there's greater synergy as we go through it all. So hats off to you guys with regards mm-hmm. to all the, the data you put out. I know from us here at you know, Investigate Buyers Agency, we work very closely with you know some of the analytics and trends and data that we pull from from domain and APM, price finder, so forth. So uh, you know, very grateful for that support as well. Um, so John, thank you again for your time today, mate, and uh, really appreciate your dive into some of the housing market. More importantly, your journey and some of the tips as well that you've given. Thanks, Arjun. You guys do a wonderful service to your many listeners. Uh, And thank you, too, to the audience listening here. Like, you're the movers and shakers of the industry. Uh, You're helping make us all better. Uh, You're one of the reasons why Australia is, I think, the most fun and one of the most prominent real estate markets in the whole world. So thank you. It's a pleasure to be part of the ecosystem, first as an investor and now now as a professional. It's Arjun here again. And just wanted to say I hope that you enjoyed the session here with John, Chief Revenue Officer at Domain. We went over some interesting points, and I guess my key takeaway from John's thoughts were that even amongst these times where we see interest rates rising or changes occurring, he still truly believes, as well as Domain's greater belief in the long term of property investing here in Australia, and that we should really come back to our investing plan in mind with a 5 to 7% long-term averages. At Investicate, that's something that we do as well. We actually have portfolio planning with clients that, yes, aim for outperformance in purchases, aim for outperformance in locations, but we bring it back to that 5% per annum conservative growth rate. And that's what it's really about. So we can then go and achieve an investing goal. Some other key takeouts that I really liked from this episode were John's thoughts on really investing and what's happening with the behaviors of interest rates and people kind of thinking, hey, I don't have to sell, I'm not really going to sell, and maybe those they don't have to buy. And this is what's causing that key difference in demand and supply, that imbalance that's being had because buyer demand has really come off in some areas. But 
I hope I also raised a key point for you all to analyze and understand, which is that over the last 24 months, only 10% of transactions of the total dwelling pool in Australia occurred in these very low interest rate environments. And of that 10%, as John pointed out, many are still on those very, very low amounts of interest rates through fixed rates and offers like that. So when that happens, it means that there's a core reason where there's so many people who don't have to because of these two components. The cap is quite low at 10%. And secondly, many of that 10% also got great rates. Now, once these great rates start to come off, I personally don't think the pinch will be as bad as many people say. And this is because of that cap. Only five to 600,000 transactions happened over the last 12 months. And then add on a bit more on top of that, we take it to 1 million, representing just under 10% of over 10 million dwellings in Australia. So that's the key here. And if that 10% did come back on in stock, it's going to make an effect in different cities in different ways. We talked about the stock levels in markets like Sydney and Melbourne that sit at a, a balance point now, sitting back at their five-year averages. And if we think of those five years, 2017 to 2022, 17 to 19, saw actually some of those bigger price declines in Sydney, which means that that demand and stock imbalance has occurred even back then. Now, over that five-year imbalance now in stock, that's where the demand is going to change when you have a balanced supply city. Whereas we saw Adelaide on one example and many smaller regional centers or major regional centers even, they saw their stock level still at 30% below five-year averages or anywhere between 20 to 45% below pre-pandemic levels. That's the key here. If you can really take a look at not applying the thought of the last two years, a blanket approach to investing, and start taking it through to city by city and those micro markets, that's the key thing that John also pointed out, really getting local with the analysis. Now, there are a couple of parts that I don't wholeheartedly agree with, which is the component of cycles and cities just following each other the whole way through. Time will tell, though, whether my thoughts come out to be you know, the core difference and not all of them just following the same cycle, or whether John's thoughts on, hey, all of them will just progressively end at the same place anyway, come to fruition. That's it from us at The Property Nerds. And to get a copy of some of the data points that we went through, revisit the Housing Fundamentals white paper. That's for free, and you can download that on investikit.com.au slash white papers. Have a great rest of your day. Game over.